0: Alright,
1: the last judgment oracle against Egypt, 32, starting in 17, which occurs a couple weeks after the oracle in the first part of chapter 32. That was in the 12th year, the 12th month, on the first day of the month. This is in the 12th year on the 15th day of the month. Um, And it's kind of an interesting picture as we see Egypt going down, so to speak, so would somebody read 17
0: to 32? I would, but I can't read. In the twelfth year, on the fifteenth day of the month, the Lord of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, wail for the hordes of Egypt, and bring it down, her and the daughters of the powerful nations, to the world with those who go down to the pit. Whom do you surpass in beauty? Go down and make your bed with the uncircumcised. They shall fall in the midst of those who are slain by the sword. She is given over to the sword. They have drawn her and all her hordes away. The strong among the mighty ones shall speak of him and his helpers from the midst of Sheol. They have gone down. They lie still, the uncircumcised slain by the sword. Assyria is there and all her company, her graves are round about her. All of them are slain, followed by the sword, whose graves are set in the remotest parts of the pit, and her company is round about her grave. All of them are slain, fallen by the sword, who spread terror in the land of the living. Elam is there, and all her hordes around her grave, all of them slain, fallen by the sword, who went down uncircumcised to the lower parts of the earth, who instilled their terror in the land of the living, and bore their disgrace with those who went down to the pit. They have made a bed for her among the slain with all her hordes. Her graves are around it, they are all uncircumcised, slain by the sword, Although they have terror, although their terror was instilled in the land of the living, and they bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit, they were put in the midst of the slain. Meshach, Tubal, and all their hordes are there, their graves surround them. All of them are there all of them were slain by the sword, uncircumcised, though they instilled their terror in the land of the living. Nor do they lie beside the fallen heroes of the uncircumcised who went down to Shield with their weapons of war, and whose swords were laid under their heads, but the punishment for their iniquity rested on their bones, For the terror of these heroes was once in the land of the living but in the midst of the uncircumcised you will be broken and lie with those (coughs) slain by the sword there also is edom its kings and all its princes who for all their might are laid with those slain by the sword they will lie with the uncircumcised and with those who go down to the pit there also are the chiefs of the north all of them and all the sidonians who in spite of the terror resulting from their might in shame went down with the slain so they lay down uncircumcised with those slain by the sword, and bore their disgrace with those who go down to the pit. These Pharaoh will see, and he will be comforted for all his hordes slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his army, declares the Lord God. Though I instill the terror of him in the land of the living, yet he will be made to lie down among the uncircumcised, along with those slain by the sword, even Pharaoh and all his sword hordes, declares the Lord God.
1: Okay, so what do we see happening to powerful Egypt and Pharaoh here? <laughs> Slaughtered and where do they go? Down to the pit. Down to the pit. Down to the realm of the dead, so to speak. Uh, Along with who?
0: The Assyrians.
1: And so forth and so on. How does he categorize those that are there? uses one word a couple of times. Uncircumcised? The, the uncircumcised. <laughs> Interestingly, the Egyptians practiced circumcision. So to be down there with the uncircumcised would to the Egyptians also Why would be a disgrace.
0: Why
1: would the Egyptians practice A lot of countries did. It wasn't just Israelites. I was, we started our Bible reading in
2: Genesis and I had just gotten to the part where Ishmael and Paul... I'm sure people either thought he was crazy or it wasn't something brand new.
1: Yes, I don't know for sure about back that far. Although I wouldn't be surprised there were other nations that did it even then. I don't know, but certainly in these days uh, there were various nations that circumcised. So they would look
0: down on the uncircumcised.
1: Yes, yes.
2: So that was really a negative.
1: Yes, it was and uh, we get kind of an interesting picture here you remember Ezekiel back in chapter 8 when he was taken in the vision by God to uh, the temple and kind of reminded you maybe of some of those programs on the nature channels where they have a video camera and they're you know kind of in a distance with a hushed voice they're uh, showing you these animals in their natural habitat Well, we get to go down to the underworld and we see some of the uh, illustrious inhabitants of uh, the, the realm that Egypt and Pharaoh will be entering and it included Assyria and what other nations? Elam and Meshech and Tubal <laughs> and Edom and the, Sidonians. and the Sidonians so Egypt makes how many? somebody locked me I was
0: just guessing I say seven but I haven't
1: counted yeah you're right <laughs> good guess
3: Hey, Sarah. (laughs) Sarah? Are you insinuating that I scoot over?
2: (laughs) I'm I'm asking without words. Can you repeat the nations we've got? Egypt, Assyria,
0: Elam, the Sidonians.
1: Meshach, Tubal, and... uh, Is that it? Let's see. Assyria, Elam, Meshach, Tubal, Edom, Sidon, and Egypt. So seven nations. I only have six. Which ones do you have?
0: Egypt, Assyria... Elam, Sidonian,
1: Meshach, Tubal. And Edom also. Oh,
0: Elam and Edom.
1: Yes. The two big E's. And, um, you know, it's kind of like uh, he's sort of uh, ironizing Pharaoh's fate uh, and pointing out some of the more exotic inhabitants, perhaps, of uh, the the pit. Uh, Pharaoh won't be lonely down there he'll have plenty of good company all these other nations that have fallen by the sword so he will have the miserable comfort of, comfort of knowing that he was not alone in his faith so comments and questions on Egypt descending into the pit the last half of chapter 32
2: Um, My version in 21 talks about um, going down to hell. Is that more accurately translated as sheol?
1: Sheol would be the word in in Hebrew. You know, what it means is really the question. And I don't know exactly what to say. (laughs) I think there's a good bit of possible debate. She seems to be the realm where the wicked dead go. Now, I don't know whether hell is exactly the right word for that. In this situation, where before the judgment, it's more of a you know almost more of a symbolic thing. So I don't know whether we ought to call that hell or not. But it is, it would be the Hebrew word sheol. Explain only evil people Well, I I, I wouldn't. Stick my life on that one, but that seems to be what you normally see.
4: Because we don't necessarily have something we know with to shield, but we have David reference himself like he will go down to shield, or like Abraham says, you know, that he will go down after after he finally he lost Joseph. Does he say something like that? That his own? Jacob. In um, what?
2: Jacob. Jacob. There.
4: We'll go down and start to to shield. It's explain that how only people are reference going to well as
1: I said I'm not willing to absolutely affirm that and you may have come up with at least in connection with uh, Jacob an interesting idea yeah he does say in Genesis 37:35, surely I will go down to Sheol one mourning for my son so perhaps we ought to say the realm of where all people go when they die Although there seems to be a lot of passages where it's pretty negative, like this one.
2: What about, um, I can't remember, the rich man and Lazarus?
1: Yeah. Does it
2: reference?
1: It obviously doesn't use the word sheol, because that's a Hebrew word. Um, It's Luke 16. It talks about um, Abraham's bosom where Lazarus went. I don't think, though, it uses, well, it uses in uh, Luke 16:23 in Hades, mm. he lifted up his eyes. And that's an interesting question, too. The word Hades literally means the unseen place. So, I don't know whether we ought to take Hades as sort of the realm where the wicked go when they die, or more broadly as the <laughs> realm where everyone goes when they die. In the New Testament, the there's two other words that enter into contention. If we if we use their Greek names, it's Gehenna, which seems to have been used for the place where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die, uh, and so forth. Probably more what we think of as the absolute eternal place of the wicked. And there's Tartarus, which was used only in Second Peter two four of the place where the uh, wicked angels were held. So, I don't know. I don't have real strong convictions on exactly how to define Hades and Sheol. Uh, There's a lot of theories about it, but I've never studied it in all that much detail. So.
2: So, it could be kind of the holding cell for the wicked, or it could be the holding cell for the dead, in which there's a great gulf and there's...
1: Yeah, I think you could see that even in connection with Luke 16. I don't know whether we ought to see in Hades he lifted up his eyes as applicable only to the rich man or if Lazarus was in Hades and the rich man lifted up his eyes in Hades also. You know, it doesn't specifically use the term Hades for Lazarus. It uses the term Abraham's bosom or paradise or whatever. So, uh, I don't know.
2: Do you
1: see this as a parable, or as... It is a parable. Okay. I believe. Yeah. The, it, it, that doesn't maybe change a lot, but in Luke 16, verse 1 and verse 19 start almost the very same way. There, now, there was a rich man. And I think that is very difficult to get over uh, in the context of the chapter if these were not parallel. And certainly, I think everybody agrees that the unrighteous steward parable in Luke 16, 1 to 13 was a parable. So I think the rich man and Lazarus is, is almost definitely a parable. The only thing that makes, there are two things that make the rich man and Lazarus maybe seem not like a parable. It's the only parable where you name one of the characters. And maybe, in a way, it's the only parable that deals with sort of like things outside of our human realm of experience. you're welcome um, so other things in 32 or <coughs> other questions and comments along all these lines of all these uh, Hebrew and Greek words
4: well how is Pharaoh comforted comfort in verse 31
1: by this? well I think this is irony you know he has the comfort of seeing all these others who are down there with him you know, at least he didn't go down by himself.
0: So he loves property.
1: Yeah, so he got to have the comfort of seeing all these other, uh, you know, departed nations down there. I, I think he's using that in, in almost sarcasm. Is there
0: any reason why it's these nations are not other nations? You know, do you like a geographical area? Are they something that Egypt would have had in it?
3: I don't really
1: know. I mean, it's kind of an odd assortment. I mean, for the most part, you could say they were kind of powerful or far-off nations. But that wouldn't so much be true in 29 and 30 of Edom and Sidon. It's more true of Assyria, Elam, Meshech, and Tubal. So I don't know. if there, there may be something to the ones he chose, but I'm not sure what it is. I
4: have another question about wouldn't there be more than seven nations? study. There are. There are also are the chiefs of the north. All of them. And no, no, no. all the
1: Yes. No, no. There's just seven named nations.
4: So who are been like all the chiefs of the north?
1: I don't know. Other <laughs> nations around Sidon, perhaps. Come in, boys and girls. <laughs> Where's Meshach? You can pull up the floor and sit up. Uh,
2: <laughs> Meshach? Yeah.
1: Oh, I, you know, I think maybe north, uh, east. It's used in Ezekiel 38 in connection with Gog of Magog uh, that got the prince of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal. Okay. As I recall, I think they were up north in kind of the Japheth area. Okay. But I can't tell you more They're not
2: good that. folks.
1: Mm, Already, you know. I mean, I mean
2: they're hanging out with Gog and Magog, so
1: that's uh, right. They're probably not. That's out. right, but I mean, when it's all said and done, what are the good nations? You know, I mean, pretty much you could say that about all of them. But yes, you are right. They are the allies of the enemies of God's people in Ezekiel thirty-eight. It's interesting. I never noticed before.
4: But in Genesis ten-two, they're actually brothers, two and Mechet and Magog. <coughs>
1: okay. Well, that's interesting. I had gone. I knew they were back there, but I didn't look at the family uh, connection. So, uh, okay, cool. So they were Japhethites, which Japheth generally went north. We are probably Japhethites to some extent ourselves. Are there other questions or comments on Ezekiel 32? Well, Ezekiel 33 is a major transition chapter. And we'll see that. So, chapter 33, verses
3: 1 through 9. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your countrymen and say to them, When I bring the sword against the land, and the people of the land choose one of their men and make him their watchman, and he sees the sword coming against the land and blows the trumpet to warn the people, then if anyone hears the trumpet but does not take warning, and the sword comes and takes his life, his blood will be on his own head. Since he heard the sound of the trumpet but did not take warning, his blood will be on his own head. If he had taken warning, he would have saved himself." But if the watchman sees the sword coming, and does not blow the trumpet to warn the people, and the sword comes and takes the life of one of them, that man will be taken away because of his sin. But I will hold the watchman accountable for his blood. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. So hear the word I speak, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways, that wicked man will die for his sin, and I will hold you accountable for his blood. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways, and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. Alright,
1: so, um, we're actually, uh, kind of seeing deja vu here. Uh, We are seeing Ezekiel in what role? watchman. The watchman. Have we seen that before? Say yes.
2: Where? Back in chapter 3, I think. Back in
1: chapter 3, when Ezekiel began his work, he was commissioned by God as a watchman. And now, sort of at the end of his watchman work, we see that again. Now, in this case, in 2 through 6, God is telling Ezekiel this for the benefit of whom?
0: The people.
1: Yes. He's supposed to tell this to the people. Now I think this is sort of justifying Ezekiel's role, what he has been doing. Because we're going to see in this chapter, the news come to Ezekiel and the exiles that Jerusalem has fallen that the promised destruction, the judgment from God, has occurred. Now, in that destruction that Babylon brought, was the problem that there was no warning? They had been warned. Ezekiel had been warning the exiles. Who had been warning the people back in Jerusalem? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. So on both sides of the desert, the people had been duly warned. Ezekiel had even sent some communication back. And Jeremiah had sent some communication over. And uh, they knew. So the watchman's role has been fulfilled. But I think this is a suitable way of sort of concluding that section and beginning a new phase of Ezekiel's work to remind us of Ezekiel's role. Now, you've got this situation in verse 2, where there is an enemy coming. God brings a sword on the land. Now, there's two possibilities for the watchman. In 3 through 5, the watchman does what?
2: Warns people, blows the
1: trumpet. And the people don't listen, so what?
5: They die, but he's okay.
1: They are responsible for their own death, because they were warned. He has acquitted himself. It isn't his fault. You can't make somebody listen. You blow the trumpet. You sound the warning. That is our job. Have you ever tried to warn someone of the wickedness of their way and they didn't listen and they didn't change? If you warned them whose fault is it that they didn't listen and they didn't change? theirs. What can you do? You did your job. It is not up to us. To make somebody listen and make them obey. Wasn't Ezekiel's job? Wasn't Jeremiah's job? They did their job. God had given the warning. They, the people didn't listen. But now in six, you've got the opposite scenario. What's that? He Didn't warn them. If he didn't warn them, what happens? They still die, but it's his fault. Exactly. He is held partially responsible for their death because he knew and he didn't tell them. The responsibility God gave to somebody like Ezekiel influences other people's lives. And by neglecting his role, he would have been partially responsible for their iniquity. So, that's telling the people what his role had been. Now, he says in 7 through 9, As for you, son of man, I've appointed you as a watchman for the house of Israel. And your job is to give the warning. And the people may die in their iniquity. And by the way, it makes all the difference in the world how we die. Whether in the Lord or in our iniquity. But but even though they die in their iniquity, Ezekiel is held accountable if he doesn't warn. Not if he does. Now comments and questions on these first nine verses of 33. Adam.
5: I heard a, lesson, a good lesson about a similar thing last night. Cool. But uh, one, one of the things that is comforting to me in this is if I were Isaiah or Ezekiel, to me it takes a little bit of pressure off me. It makes it a lot easier for me to realize all, all I really have to do is sound the trumpet. That, you know, I, I don't have to... You know he, He's not here being told. Then you have to go knock on everybody's door and make sure that they heard... The trumpet, and and you know go through the house and then go look every place anybody could be hiding. All he has to do is is sound the trumpet, and I think that's very beneficial uh, to me when I'm trying to make application to my life. Of when you see people that you want to save, or uh, even sometimes when you see so many people that you don't feel like you're you have the ability to save everyone, you know you can sound the trumpet. And let that warning go out and let everyone be responsible for their own salvation to us to a certain extent
1: people do have a personal responsibility for their salvation our job is to make the announcement is to declare the message our job is not to make them listen now How far should we go in that? What's the, how far should we go in getting the message out to people?
2: How far would we have wanted it to have gone out to get to us?
1: That's a good question the parable of the Good Samaritan the principle of love your neighbor as yourself what would we have wanted to be done for us I remember reading a tremendous article your neighbor using the parable of the Good Samaritan and describing a person who was lost who's basically begging his neighbor not to be too quick to give up on him (laughs) When they see him in sin, there's something to be said for that. Um, on the other hand, is there is there a rationale for giving up on somebody? Mm-hmm. What?
5: Well, I mean, there's no indication that you know you can't. In other words, going where the where the harvest is uh, ripe or whatever, where it's more uh, maybe more beneficial, or where you may be doing more good than spending time with someone that's not interested.
1: What would be biblical statements that would confirm that? Don't
2: cast your pearls before swine. Don't
1: cast your pearls before swine, nor give what is holy Shake to dogs. Shake the dust mm-hmm. off your feet. Mm-hmm some other things Jesus said to the disciples about if you go into a city and they don't receive you go into the next I think there is some biblical rationale behind the idea of not of not spending all of our time making sure citizen A is converted so but you know what about this this idea? You know, some of us uh, have the ability to make some money. What about just sort of making enough money that we can invest in I don't know the Goodyear blimp, and we'll will you know put something up in the sky, or we'll put some kind of an ad in the newspaper, or we'll will have a you know little commercial on the radio or something, and and you know we've gotten the message out. You know, we've kind of done our job. And, you know, they don't listen, if they don't come, then, so what? We did our job. What do you think about that?
2: There's such a thing as follow-up calls.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What do you see in the Bible to indicate that?
2: Persistent widow.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's with the Lord, though. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
5: when the, the 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 three men that went into Sodom and Gomorrah to get Lot ended up having to just grab a hold of him and take him out of the city. They told him that he needed to leave, but they did went beyond that to get him out.
1: What does the Great Commissioner Mark say?
2: Mm -hmm. to all the world
1: and preach the gospel to every living creature creature. there is something to be said it seems to me biblically for personal contact it seems to me like you see that with Jesus Jesus didn't just send some kind of a telegram to the world he came personally and the apostles didn't just send some kind of a news bulletin to the cities of Asia Minor and Macedonia and Achaia and whatever, they went. So I think we shouldn't be too impersonal in this. I'm not against mass media efforts, but I don't think that exhausts our responsibility. That we ought to seek to take the gospel to each person. But that we are not responsible for making them listen or making them obey. Ezekiel did a lot of public stuff. And Jeremiah did a lot of going to the temple and wherever else he could go. You know, where he could have contact with people. God sent him there to give his message to those people. I think we need to be talking to people. And we, we need to try to talk to as many people as we can. And we're, doing, we're, not very, we're not doing very well with this, it seems to me, as a whole. I'm not doing very well with that. We need to be a lot more insistent, urgent in the concept... That the message needs to go out to everybody. And not just everybody in Marion County. But everybody in every county in the U.S. And every place in the world. And we need to have more of a vision for that. And more of a passion for that in our own personal life. But it's still not my job to make them Christians. You know, I was talking... This might be a good illustration. I was uh, talking... We went uh, yesterday to Pittsburgh where Laura... I think today has accepted a job and uh, uh, to start in the summer. But, um, we visited with a congregation there in Pittsburgh, maybe the only one that's in Pittsburgh itself. And uh, we went to the home of the preacher there afterwards, where several of the brethren also went. And it was very interesting talking to him about the history of the church there. It started about 16 years ago. And uh, they've had almost no move-ins from other churches. Almost all of their growth has come from converting people. He said they've lost in these 16 years to move outs, about 80 or 90. They've got a church of probably 35 or 40. I said, where have you gotten the context that you've started from scratch and apparently converted and capped until they moved away anyway, 125 or 140 or whatever? He said, well, uh, mostly from people in the congregation talking to people he said we've done some other things but that's where we got most of the contacts that have been converted and I thought that was interesting he pointed out two or three people that had brought in tons of contacts to teach Uh, there needs to be a lot more done in Pittsburgh it's got two and a half million people I doubt that they've scratched the surface but they're doing the right thing and uh, they're doing the right thing probably in part because you know he preached a sermon yesterday morning they, they have one service on Sunday they have two sermons and the first sermon he preached was, uh, you know, talking about Acts 3, 4, and 5. That if we want to restore New Testament Christianity, we need to restore bold and fearless preaching. And he went through how they preached and got opposition and kept preaching. They were beaten and they kept preaching. No matter what the results were, they kept preaching. And we don't do that very well. We're too afraid of rejection. We're too afraid we're going to look narrow-minded and bigoted and whatever.
3: comments and questions i guess i was going to say something on that kind of like what you were saying how we're like afraid um like sometimes i'm afraid of what people will react or how they will react cause i'm used to like somebody i talk to might get upset so i'm going to generalize that and say everybody's going to react like that i mean sometimes we don't know that we could talk to somebody who is very curious and who wants to learn and who uh might find a a deep, sincere interest in trying to seek to become a Christian. And I think I just built that fear, uh, you know, that one-time rejection of it just kind of stuck with me, and then I applied that to everybody I saw, instead of keeping an open mind about it, I guess, if that makes any sense. That makes plenty of sense. Just because one person rejects it doesn't mean that the second person
1: will. But but let's ask this question. What if we knew... (laughs) I don't think we have a way to. Well, what if we did know that every single person in a given area, say, would reject the gospel? What should we do? Preach it and warn them anyway.
2: I was going to say, visually, proclaim it freely.
1: Yes. Bad passage for that, but... Yeah. yeah. They shouldn't have proclaimed it freely there.
2: Right. Yeah. But,
1: Uh, we ought to. You know, we we ought to announce it whether they listen or whether they don't. Here, Ezekiel had been warned in the very beginning of the book, they're hard-headed, they're not going to listen. Now, I'm pointing to your watchman, go warn them. Why warn people who won't listen? So you can stand before God with a
2: clear conscience? So you
1: can stand before God with a clear conscience. So
2: they can have the opportunity.
1: Absolutely. So they have the opportunity to know and to reject the message. God is honored by them being without excuse. They have the opportunity. God wants his message announced to every creature. He didn't say it would convert every creature. In fact, he gave every indication it won't. But he wants it preached to them. In that sense, I am not so sure. That we ought to be all that much focused on investing in the places where we'll get the most results. Maybe a little. But I'm not sure that's so much the point. The point is, the message needs to be preached. I mean, I don't know why send Jeremiah or Ezekiel to these kind of people. (laughs) There weren't very good results that are going to happen, but God wanted the message preached there. I mean, Ezekiel and Jeremiah were two of God's best preachers, two of his greatest prophets, that he wasted on hard headed people. I don't think he thought of us a thought of it as a waste. We might have. We might say, you know, if you take a country set that people don't listen very well. Well, don't send anybody good there. You know, what's what's the use? I'm not sure that's the case. I'm not sure that's the way the Lord would look at that. Maybe this was his best prospect. <laughs> that could be as I mean, well. Who else would he would they have gone to at this time? <laughs> and that and that also would <laughs> be the case. You know, and it often is. I mean, don't be shocked when most people don't listen to the trumpet. I mean, wow. That's it's certainly not uncommon in the history of the world that it's somewhat difficult to find a concentration of good prospects.
5: That made me think of how Jonah was one of the worst prophets, but a whole nation responded to him. And so, I mean, the illustration there is that it really is not in the one that is sent.
1: And the most unlikely of places to respond. Of all the places you would not think would have responded, Nineveh would have been at the top of my list. And yet they did. So, I mean, I, I'm a terrible judge of that anyway. Even if we were trying to decide who was going to respond well, I always miss it. The people I think will don't, the people I think won't do. And so I have no idea. But it really doesn't make any difference. Our job is to warn them. You know, be at the watch Other comments and questions through nine. 10 to 20.
2: Now, as for you, Son of Man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them. How then can we survive? Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? And you, son of man, say to your fellow citizens, The righteousness of a righteous man will not deliver him in the day of his transgression. And as for the wickedness of the wicked, he will not stumble because of it in the day when he turns from his wickedness, whereas a righteous man will not be able to live by his righteousness on the day when he commits sin. When I say to the righteous, he will surely live, and he so trusts in his righteousness, that he commits iniquity, none of his righteous deeds will be remembered. But in that same but in that same iniquity of his which he has committed he will die. But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness. If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he will surely live. He shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed will be remembered against him. He has practiced justice and righteousness. He will surely live. Yet your fellow fellow citizens say, The way of the Lord is not right. When it is their own way, that is not right. When the righteous turns from his righteousness and commits iniquity, then he shall die in it. But when the wicked turns from his wickedness and practices justice and righteousness, he will live by them. Yet you say, The way of the Lord is not right. O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways.
1: Finally, as Jerusalem is falls, and we'll see that in the next two verses, the house of Israel feel how
2: rotting in their sins.
1: They finally felt the burden of their sin. And now they sort of feel helpless and demoralized from it. How can we survive? What's the use? It's hopeless. God's against us. He's punished us for our sins. And there's, there's no way we can live. And what he says to him in verse 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil way. What God is saying is that he wants them to repent. God's judgment is not some sort of a fixed, irrevocable thing. Irrevocable, perhaps it is. Uh, That that regardless of what men do, he's just going to judge them. If they'll repent, he'll give them life. Even now, that option is open for them. They should not see this as a dead end. God has punished them severely. Severely. But in the hopes that they'll turn back to him. God always wants us to turn back to him. And he illustrates with the principle that we've seen before. What happens if a righteous man turns to sin? He and what happens if a wicked man turns to the Lord? He lives. What does that tell you?
2: Ezekiel
1: 18 applies here too. ok that is Ezekiel 18 applies here too. I didn't know what you'd say on that one but anything would work
3: what do you learn from that well one that there's a, uh, a sense of equality in, among the sinner and the righteous person that they both can equally fall and that you know the righteous man is not invincible from the temptation of sin That'd be thing, I guess. ok
1: that's for sure I mean, you see that you can't store up righteousness and then coast on yeah. in. So until you die, it's, it's still yet to be determined. It is where you are at with God when you die. You can serve the Lord and do all sorts of wonderful things for 50 years and then turn away from the Lord in the last years of your life and be lost so you never can feel a sense of you know immunity nothing could ever happen to me
5: and it's a good way to prove predestination it can exist I mean you have it here
1: absolutely and you have the idea of once you're in grace you can lose your salvation very clearly
2: And it also says that it's never too late to do the to to come back from. I mean, you could spend those 50 years instead of doing good things in doing some really awful stuff. And if you turn, if you turn back, turn back, oh my people, then it's okay.
1: (laughs) It's a message of hope in that sense. Absolutely, we are not judged. By past performance, we are not locked into our previous wrong choices. God is willing to take us and to bless us if we'll repent and turn to Him. Nobody is so bad that they can't turn back and be accepted, and nobody's so good that they can't fall away and be lost. So it is a hopeful message for them here because they were lost. They were being punished. And this is saying, but God is willing to bless you if you'll turn back to Him. Comments?
3: This also reminds me of like in Mark 4 where uh, he's doing the parable of the sower and the seed. And he's like at the last uh, part of that where he's talking about some profited uh, 30-some or 60 or 100 or whatever. And that kind of reminded me of the concept. It's not how much we have worked for, how much we've stored, but it's if we are continuing to labor for the Lord or whatever. It's not, you know, a basis of um, a merit system that, you know, it can all come to nothing if you just stop if you don't continue in your righteousness or in your good works, whatever. I found that application there. Very good point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Other thoughts?
1: All right. The pivotal point of the chapter and really of the book 21 and
5: 22. Now it came about in the twelfth year of our exile on the fifth of the tenth month that the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, The city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord had been upon me in the evening before the refugees came, and he opened my mouth at the time they came to me in the morning, so my mouth was open and I was no longer speechless
1: this is the bombshell coming to the exiles the word finally reaches them the city has been taken the Babylonians control Jerusalem now what does that prove?
2: that he's a prophet
1: he hasn't been crying wolf what he prophesied has come true there can be no more doubt about it and as a result of that what does God do to Ezekiel? remember back in chapter 3 he was not allowed to speak except God's message but now he can speak freely again because he's going to have a new job to do now and what you see basically in 34 to 48 is a whole different message than what you had in the earlier parts of Ezekiel now Ezekiel can devote himself to building up and giving hope not to pulling down and announcing judgment. The judgment's come. Now there needs to be hope for the exiles that the remnant can turn back to God and God will bless them. And Ezekiel will speak freely to offer this hope to those who have gone into captivity. Comments and questions?
2: So, aha. Ezekiel three and yes. thirty-three. Yes. It's not actually a chiasm,
1: No, maybe not, but it's kind of
2: uh, it's, it's still bookended.
1: Yeah, it's kind of an inclusio.
2: So with the with the the watchman watchman's no speaking and watchman speaking yes. kind of thing.
1: Yes, it is. Yeah, it, it certainly is you know because it kind of does encompass this major section of judgment against the wicked nation other comments and questions how long did it take to get the message Oh, I was afraid you'd ask that. Well, that's kind of complicated. Because there are some question marks about how to correlate this date with the date that the city fell. And there's some debate about that. But probably about five or six months. About five or six months probably, but there there is a little bit of argument about that. But that's I mean, you've got so many question marks about how they date things, including the different um, systems that were used for dating in Jerusalem and in Babylon and some other things. Uh but, but the general consensus would be probably about five or six months. From three to
0: here, is what you're saying.
1: From the time Jerusalem fell until the time the announcement reached the ears of the exiles in Babylon.
0: How long was Ezekiel's mouth closed?
1: Probably about five or six years. You weren't
0: a
3: woman. (laughs)
2: At least not a woman with baby news,
3: right? Well,
1: I mean, you know, the Lord's will has to take precedence over our natural tendencies. (laughs) Other comments? All right. Um, There are a couple of special messages in the rest of this chapter. One of the special messages was for those who remained in the land, and the other was for those who were exiled. And uh, these are a couple of the last, um, perhaps slightly negative uh, passages in the book. Ah, I say that, and yet there are some negative passages, but but the other negative passages are mostly to contrast and give a blessing to God's true people. Uh, Anyhow, 23 to 29.
5: Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land. So to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Therefore they say to them, Thus says the Lord God, You eat meat with the blood in it. Lift up your eyes to your idols as you shed blood. Should you then possess the land? You rely on your sword, you commit abomination, and each of you defiles his neighbor's wife, should you then possess the land. Thus you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As I live, surely those who are in the waste places will fall by the sword, and whoever is in the open field I will give to the beasts to be devoured, to those who are in the strongholds and in the caves will die of pestilence. And I shall make the land a desolation and a waste, And the pride of her power will cease, and the mountains of Israel will be desolate so that no one will pass through. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I make the land a desolation and a waste because of all their abominations which they have committed.
1: All right. Uh, This reminds me of a section back in chapter 11, but he says, Son of man, in verse 24, they who live in these waste places in the land of Israel are saying, Now, I think that would be the handful of people left behind when the mass was taken into captivity. And they were saying, Abraham was only one, yet he possessed the land, so to us who are many, the land has been given as a possession. Do you understand what they're really saying, reading between the lines, what this really means? This land
2: is my land. Yeah. And no one else has a... Sharing
1: it. No one else like who? No
2: one else is as righteous as I am, so no one else gets to stay in the land. And the 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 exiles don't have a part anymore.
1: So what were they doing? What were these people who had remained in the land doing and claiming they had the right to do?
0: Taking over everything.
1: Taking over all the land that had been abandoned by the people who were in exile. After all. It was Abraham's land, and he was just one man with still quite a few of us. You know, so surely we ought to get this land. You know, they would have thought of themselves perhaps as being the ones, the Lord, you know, I mean, he saw fit to send all those other guys into exile, so he must want us to have this land. This was their sort of justification for quietly annexing everybody else's property and claiming it as their own. After all, they're not here anymore. You know, so it's ours. And, uh, well, what does the Lord think about that? He
2: doesn't think a lot of claim jumpers, I think.
1: Especially when these claim jumpers are guilty of what?
5: The same thing as the rest of them were.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: (laughs) Eating blood, um, shedding blood while looking up to idols, and Defiling his neighbor's wife
1: and are these the kind of people that God would want to possess his land? That's why he kicked the other guys off. You know, God's not going to uh, be happy with these kind of people possessing his land. So what was he going to do?
5: Kill them too.
1: Gonna to kill them too. And because desolate the land. Kill them only. The others were carried
5: away.
1: Yeah, that's true, yes.
5: These are the people
0: that Jeremiah is preaching to that he's talking
1: about. Well, the ones that Jeremiah ended up preaching to. I mean, I think this is after the, the Babylon has let off the last of the captives and has just left a handful back there. And it would be parallel to the people with Jeremiah, say in Jeremiah 40 to 44.
0: So is this word getting back to the people? I don't know. It just seems like this is an Ezekiel, a Jeremiah passage. Why isn't
4: this in
1: Jeremiah instead of Ezekiel? I don't know. The next passage is going to be to the exiles. I don't know if there's a way they got it back uh, there or not, or Jeremiah preached the same thing to them, and, you know, this is just uh, Ezekiel's interpretation for those who are in exile. I don't know. It's not uncommon. I mean, look at how many prophecies there were against the nations, and as far as we know, the (laughs) nations didn't get those prophecies. God wants his people everywhere to understand what he's doing and how he feels about different things.
2: So
0: make sure I get this straight. It's the people that are there, the very few people left in Jerusalem. I think so. That's saying, hey, we're the ones here. This is ours. Even though you guys used to be here, you're toast. And he's saying that
2: you've been as sinful as they are in
1: that. That's it
5: yeah that's it so they're actually going to be worse off than the ones that were carried away
1: yes they were the future of the people was with those in exile not those who were left behind you had that several places including a good passage in Jeremiah 24 with those two baskets of was it Figs, I think? Good figs and bad figs or, figs? or was it fruit? Good fruit and bad fruit? I don't remember. But anyhow, Jeremiah 24 is a good passage that shows that the, the good ones were the ones that were kicked off. They, those were the, that's where the future of the people lie. The people who remained in the land, they were a dead end in God's plan. You had a similar thing being done after some had been taken into exile Back in Ezekiel chapter 11 and verse 15, Son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles, and the whole house of Israel, all of them, are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from the Lord, this land has been given us as a possession. And so forth. And God doesn't like that when They said it either. So some of these recent exiles had done the same thing with some of the earlier exiles. And now the handful remaining in the land are taking over everybody's property. But we know from Jeremiah... What happened to at least maybe all or a, 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 a considerable part of those people who were left in the land? Do you do you know? Do you remember from Jeremiah what happened to them? They
4: fled to
1: Egypt. Yeah, they ended up going down to Egypt, which was also a dead end, uh, against God's will. Uh, but they weren't too concerned about God's will. It seems to be all along. So comments and questions through twenty nine.
5: God has never been really enthusiastic about the people who didn't learn a lesson from the punishment that was given to others.
1: You're right. Yeah. (laughs) It's always bad to be so hard headed you have to learn it, you know, firsthand. message to those who are in exile with Ezekiel. This is a curious passage, 30 to 33.
4: But as for you, son of man, your fellow citizens who talk about you by the walls and the doorways of the houses, speak to one another, each to his brother, saying, Come now, and hear what the message is which, come our, which comes forth from the Lord. They come to you as people come, and sit before you as my people, and hear your words. But they do not do them, for they do the lustful lustful desires expressed by their mouth, and their heart goes after their their gain. Behold, you are to them like a sensual song by one who has a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear your words, but they do not practice them. So when it comes to pass, as surely it will, then they will know that a prophet has been in their midst.
1: So... When Jerusalem falls, that sort of changes Ezekiel's image among the exiles. Do you see why?
2: He is a prophet, and what he said came true, so he's got a little power.
1: It upped his credibility. You know, he was uh, much more prestigious now, uh, because he's been vindicated as a prophet. He is uh, a, a prophet, clearly. And so suddenly he's popular. He's sort of the talk of the town. In fact, what are people saying to each other?
2: Hey, let's go hear his Ezekiel talk.
1: Yes, come on. Let's, let's go down and hear the latest word of the Lord. <coughs> that was really good, wasn't it? Huh. Hmm. It's a good
2: start.
1: But... What was the problem? Well, they talk, but they didn't listen. What were they doing? They weren't they weren't. <laughs> well, that's a good point. How are they seeing it? it? Looks
2: like entertainment
1: maybe. Yeah. He's kind of a celebrity. You know, sort of like a pop star. You know, they all
4: want well, to right,
1: let's listen to Ezekiel, you know, it's they're they're humming his tune but they don't know his lyrics. You know, they, they aren't listening to the message, but they're all excited about Ezekiel. You know, he's, you know, we need to get that guy to come hold us a meeting. You know, he's really, he's really good to listen to. That's kind of disgusting, isn't it? You know, it's really kind of revolting when people get all excited about listening, but they don't listen. You know, it's just a performance to them. I mean, God's word being spoken should never be thought of as a performance. That's not what it is, but it's what it was to them. We'd never struggle with this at all, would we? (laughs)
4: You
1: ever hear people that, man, we want to go hear Brother So and so preach, man, can he preach? Oh, wow, he's good. Man, you'll like it. He's really cool. And, you know, I mean, we'll talk about his eloquence. We'll talk about his illustrations. We'll talk about his clothing. We'll talk about his style his technique. We'll talk about his, you know, his voice and his gestures and his manner. And and, uh, we'll talk about all kinds of stuff. What about his lesson? What about the content? What about the changes we were supposed to make as a result of what he said? Sometimes people just view it more as a performance. They're entertained by it. They're willing to applaud it, but not listen to it, not change. That's what they were doing with Ezekiel, it seems to me. What do you think?
0: Sometimes they put it on as a performance,
1: too. You're right. Sometimes the uh, messenger himself uh, kind of tries to perform would not have been Ezekiel uh, but it can happen
2: sometimes uh, not only do we look at it as entertainment but we might be performing ourselves and just acting like we're listening Mm -hmm.
1: yes it all becomes kind of an act doesn't it (laughs) for what purpose you know we're trying to impress each other you know It was disgusting to Ezekiel. This was not what he wanted. He certainly didn't want people to be entertained by him. He had a serious message. Other thoughts. So, what's
2: the? I guess you'd say, what's the punishment for these people? I mean, the ones in the land, you know, we that's pretty, that's pretty simple. We've got you know swords and pestilence and beasts and things. But here, there's not that he, same thing.
1: Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't give a punishment. But we do know that surviving Israel the majority of surviving Israel were not blessed in Christ. Other comments and questions? Uh, Let's look at a little bit of chapter 34, maybe not a whole lot of it, but uh, 1 to 6.
2: Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves! Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly you have not strengthened. The diseased you have not healed. The broken you have not bound up. The scattered you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field, and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains, and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them.
1: So this is a prophecy against?
2: The shepherds of Israel.
1: The shepherds of Israel would refer to who? False prophets? maybe false spiritual leaders like false prophets and false priests and or also any
2: leaders
1: <laughs> <coughs> yeah political leaders I think maybe a combination of these God gave the nation political and spiritual leadership to be a blessing to the people in terms of their following the Lord uh, but these leaders of the people were doing what?
2: Feeding themselves?
1: What so were they supposed to be doing?
2: Tending the flock, including, including feeding it.
1: Yeah. they Instead of feeding the sheep, they fed on the sheep. <laughs> they exploited the flock for their own personal benefit. Uh, they They dined on roast lamb and dressed in sheepskin jackets and they sure did like this flock but not to take care of it, not to provide for it, not to act as shepherds ought to act for the flock. When God sent the leadership to the people he was sending them so that the people would be a blessing. So that the leaders would be a blessing to the people. So that they would they would for God, guide and lead and, 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 and protect and care for. Well, they just saw a chance to gain their own advantage. And how were they doing with protecting and providing for and caring for the sheep?
2: They missed that
1: part of the job description. Yeah, which was pretty much the whole job description. <laughs> they neglected the sheep. Um, they took the payment for the job, never did the job. They were, uh, you could sue them for malpractice. They just didn't do anything, really. I mean, look at, you know, four. The sickly, you haven't strengthened. Disease, you haven't healed. Broken, you haven't bound up. Scattered, you haven't brought back. You haven't sought for the lost. You know, and they're just in terrible shape. The flock were all scattered and wandering. There was no shepherd to provide for them or to gather them up. And the thing that was tragic is the flock was God's. See any good lessons in this for us?
2: Well, certainly if you're an elder, you need to pay close attention to this.
1: I think these are excellent passages to see the role of elders. Here, by contrast, (laughs) the elders are supposed to be the opposite of this. We'll see that a little later in this text when God promises good leadership to his people. But uh, you can really see what God had expected of those he puts in as shepherds. There's a number of Old Testament passages that talk about good and bad shepherding. Jeremiah 23 is a good passage, Zechariah 11. Isaiah 56, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but this one is an ideal one. And it, it really ought to help us get a better concept of the role of God's shepherds. There's There's something to be gained by knowing what they're supposed to be and do, even if we're not one. You know, sometimes we think, well, only elders ought to study passages about the role of elders. No, the sheep needs to know what the shepherd's supposed to be doing so that they can respond properly. And if I'm a sheep and I've got a shepherd doing the right job, what's that gonna mean for me?
4: Security.
1: <laughs> Security? What how am I going to have to respond?
2: Well, when you see when you see the shepherd chasing after you, the idea is not for you to keep running, but to think, wait, maybe there's a cliff and they don't want me to run over the edge of it when they have to straighten my broken leg it's not because they like it but to make it better
1: excellent may painful but they're looking out for the well being of the sheep or when they lead me to pasture I ought to eat you know I ought to take advantage of the spiritual nourishment that they provide and so forth and so on I think it's really helpful to understand that you know what, uh, you know what you sometimes hear, hopefully, uh, you know, you don't where you worship, but, but you sometimes hear like Christians saying, huh. well, you know, I mean, kind of like this, well, the elders want to know what I did on Friday night, what's in any of their business? I went to church, you know, one Sunday, it's not their job, well, what about that? Are these only Sunday sheep? (laughs) It's absolutely the elder's job to guide and protect and heal and provide for the sheep seven days a week. What I do on Friday night is every bit the elder's business. What I do in my life is their business. If it's not what the Lord wants and helping me grow to do more of what He wants. The idea of shepherds in the New Testament as to some extent it was here. The idea is to help the sheep do well in their service to God. And that our service to God is not just what we do on Sunday. Of course, it also is a lesson to the shepherds who may think of their role as being glorified business managers of the flock, which is clearly not what the Bible teaches. Uh, not that the elders don't supervise at all, but... They're not over the work of the church. They're over the church. Thoughts and comments on this?
5: Even even maybe a more personal application, if that's possible, is just the idea of, of our responsibility, whether that's as a, as a father over a family or as a parent over a child or responsibilities as, as friendship... Here, the, these are people that God had expectations for what they would do in their relationship to others, and they exploited them instead of fulfilling their, their duty. And I think that we could make that same application to whatever our roles are, that if I have, if I have a responsibility, God expects me to fulfill that responsibility.
1: And you know, here's something to think about. If you took a church and let's say they didn't have elders and then they believed they had men qualified and they appointed elders, would the first day of those elders on the job be the first day that they had shown concern for the spiritual needs of the flock and had been trying to help them grow and all that? Certainly not. You know, Jesus is our example. He's a shepherd. And so in a sense, all of us ought to be to the extent we're able we ought to be shepherds for each other we ought to be seeking to bless each other and uh, not just wait till some day of appointment where we suddenly say oh, okay i guess i better start doing this hopefully churches do doing an appointment like that any other comments questions
2: this passage strikes me as when you think of the picture that it presents, it's just really sad. When you think of the little sheep and you know, they're sick and they got wounds and broken bones and they're wandering everywhere and they don't know where they're going and no one cares no one's looking after them at all. It's just really sad.
1: Amen. It intense for us to see it as sad. Anything what else? else?
2: But it makes you think of the opposite too, like,
0: what would have been like if they had actually followed God, like this would have been so perfect.
1: That'll be eleven to sixteen. Yes, exactly. It would have been. Having shepherds that would do the right thing and the sheep respond? Oh, that's awesome. That's what and God's gonna God's gonna deal with these wicked shepherds as a blessing to the sheep. Best thing you do for these sheep is get rid of those shepherds. All right, well why don't we stop here, and uh, we'll pick up at thirty-four-seven. I think two weeks from tonight, as my uh, my time here is ending up being more or less every other week, even though. <laughs> but we'll enjoy what we have.
2: Did
1: you say you are coming next uh, week?
2: Two weeks from now. Next week, Avon.
1: Next week's Avon's study.
2: No.
1: So
3: that would be the 22nd That would be. You'd yeah. be <laughs> an old man, Gary. Uh, you're a little young for that. <laughs>
0: nine,
3: this is the home
5: edition,
2: well,
0: uh, you
1: do do oh. Okay,
0: <laughs> oh, okay. Wait,
3: yes. We have, we
0: have box, but we didn't. Get <I> <want laughs>